wanted uh, to uh, have you think about the power of questions. The power and the significance of questions. I used to call one of my daughters, Cambria, Little Miss 20 Questions. Because she would, when she was curious about something and she didn't understand something, she would go after it and pelt you with questions. And I know as a parent, I'm supposed to say it was so wonderful. And she, a curiosity, a sign of intelligence, yes, all that. But wow, did it get exhausting sometimes, right? It, she was just pressing, especially for movies, Boy, if she was engaged in what she would just ask and ask, I used to pray for a simple plot line with just a few characters so I could actually enjoy the movie. In fact, one time, uh, my mom, Grandma C, she came into town. She was, uh, had the idea that we would go to a, a Disney movie in uh, Cambridge 5 or 6. And uh, so we went to this Disney movie, and as we're walking down the aisle, I graciously yet strategically gave my mom the, the place of honor right between me and Cambria. And so we're starting the movie, and, and sure enough, I hear a little bit of whispering, and my mom bends down and, and starts going, and, and then she comes back up, movie keeps going, and then a little more whispering. My, my mom bends down and then goes back up, and then a little more whispering, and pretty soon my mom just kind of stayed down <laughs> like this. And I don't remember what the movie was, but I just remember enjoying that movie with my popcorn and just taking it. And we left the movie. I was like, kids, wasn't that a great movie? They were like, yeah, dad. And my mom was like, I don't know if that was what just happened. I don't. Questions. It's interesting. Jesus was known for his questions. Did you know that? It's kind of surprising. The guy who's supposed to know about everything, he asked a lot of questions. In fact, it's recorded in the Gospels that he asked over 125 questions. Can you believe that? I, I think some pastors counted like 138. There's some repetition there. But 138 questions that Jesus was asking like it was a technique that he was using. And I've actually been looking at uh, those questions and studying those questions. That's going to be our series that's beginning next week or kind of beginning tonight, uh, this morning, I mean. Um, and I realized that Jesus was not asking questions for information like my daughter Cambria was. He was asking questions for transformation. Not his transformation, but your transformation our transformation. And that right in the middle of a, a teaching or a miracle or a moment, at a key moment, he would ask a question that would cause the people hearing and, and I think preserved in scripture to cause us to get, why did he ask that question at that moment to that person in this context? Is there, what was going on that he chose to listen to one of those questions? Do you know, even in the resurrection stories, even as Jesus, the resurrected one, he asked questions. That's how often he asked. Like he wasn't, after he rose from the dead, he wasn't done asking questions. He had more questions to ask. And we're going to look at those questions and ask for a moment 
Why? Why would he ask those questions at that particular time? We're going to be reading in John chapter 20, where Jesus has gone through his passion. They crucified him on the cross. They buried him, rolled the stone in front of the cave. They practiced the Sabbath, so nothing happens. And it's early Sunday morning. And in John's gospel, it records Mary, Mary Magdalene. She goes to uh, the cave. She was going to do further uh, preparation and care for the body of Jesus. Picking up in John chapter 20, verse 11, says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? That funny in John's version, they don't make a proclamation to Mary. They ask a question. Now, do you think the angels knew the answer to the question? I don't think angels are dumb. I think they knew what was going on. Why would they ask the question instead of make a proclamation? I want to suggest they were being playful. What do you think? Well, let's see. Let's see. Then they asked, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize that it was Jesus. Verse 15, he asked her, woman, why are you crying? It was Jesus' turn to be playful, right? Maybe he made eye contact with the angels. He's like, I got it now. I'll do it. And then he asked her another question. Who is it you are looking for? Did Jesus know the answer to that question? Jesus ain't dumb, right? He knows it. Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, and I imagine this beautiful countenance of joy on Jesus' face, and he says, Mary. No more questions. He had had fun enough. Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. In 40 days he would ascend. He has a mission for her. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father, and your Father resurrection has changed our relationship with God and is now our Father. I'm ascending to my Father, your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So even in this resurrection story, Jesus is asking questions. And I gotta believe that he was really being playful uh, in, in part, that first thing. I gotta believe that Jesus was filled with so much joy in this most significant moment in human history and there is the sad, his sad friend 
one that he deeply loved, and he cannot wait to tell her the good news that everything has changed. He's just enjoying this moment. Can't wait to see on her face the realization that he is no longer dead, but alive. I think there's a playfulness that's there. But of course, let's ask this question. Is there a deeper reason why he would ask those two questions? Well, of course there is because he's Jesus, right? Right? So what would be, what's the, the possibility of that first question, Mary, why are you crying? I believe that the deeper reason is this idea of a life-changing, deep and abiding joy that would soon envelop Mary's life and potentially can envelop our lives. That Jesus was asking that question and that, that, that deeper piece of, if Mary would have been left right there at that moment and she would have just cared for the body, I would imagine that that would have uh, transformed her life for the rest of her life, not in a good way. That maybe with her grandchildren, she would have said, boy, children, there was a day there was the most beautiful man with the most incredible words. And he did the most amazing things. And yet, because he was so good, they killed him. They killed him. And that would have shaped the rest of her life. And yet, that was not the end of the story. That was not, that was all there. That in fact, there was much more to the story. And Jesus was saying, and this story, this part of the story is filled with joy. Mary, it's not time to cry. It's time to rejoice and embrace resurrection. Not only crucifixion, but resurrection. I believe that Jesus realized that he was going to change the tenor, the mood of Mary's entire life. And that someday she wouldn't just tell her grandchildren about a guy that was beautiful and wonderful that once lived, but she would be able to tell her grandchildren the most beautiful stories of someone who is alive today and wants a relationship with them. Have you ever had the tenor of your life changed by an event. I think sometimes many of us have seen or experienced something that, that's changed it to the negative. We've experienced a loss, a painful experience. We've gone through that. And in the midst of those things, we feel like we will never be the same again. Have you ever had that experience? That struggle. I, I've known some people that they've never overcome a particular experience and it's changed the whole mood of their lives. And yet Easter is meant, if we allow it, to change the, the mood of our life, the tenor of our life for the positive. 
that, that there is now this moment of, of joy that goes beyond. Did you know that that was right when Jesus began his public ministry? He quotes from Isaiah 61. It's a long quote. I call it his job description. It's this phenomenal job description. And part of that, it says this in Isaiah 61.3. It says, what would the Messiah do when he'd come? He would bestow on them a crown of beauty. A crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. What Jesus was saying, I have come to change the whole mood and tenor of your life. You get to exchange these ashes for a crown. You get to let go of that, that, that mourning and that sadness and place on your life this garment of praise. Now, does that mean that Christians would never grieve again, would never experience despair or sadness? No, we do that. We live in a broken world, and yet we will experience it in a different way, not without hope. Not without pain, not without comfort. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That even in the midst of our despair, even when we face those losses that normally would transform our lives, Jesus says, no, because of the resurrection, I'll bring this deep and abiding joy, if you let me that nothing in this broken world can challenge or take away. Every experience, every relationship, good or bad, this joy of the resurrection. Why are you crying, Mary? It's Easter Sunday. So a testimony that caught my attention by an author, uh, Andrew Clavin, he, uh, he wrote a book entitled The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. And he writes his story and he says for the first 45 years of his life, he was what he would call a philosophical, agnostic, and practical atheist. The first 45 years of his life, kind of rooted in that. He says <clears throat> that... He didn't have this dramatic, uh, you know, uh, stone tablet falling in his backyard, but he had steps towards Christ. He, he writes, Jesus never appeared to me while I was drunk in a gutter, and yet looking back on my life, I see that Christ was beckoning me at every turn when I was a child. He was there in the kindness of a Christian babysitter and the magic of a Christmas Eve spent at her house. When I was a troubled young man contemplating suicide, he was in the voice of the Christian baseball player who gave a radio interview that inspired me to go on. And always, he was in the day-to-day miracle of my marriage, a lifelong romance that taught me the reality of love and slowly led me to contemplate the greater love that was its source and inspiration. And then he says, there was this key moment. He said, I was reading a story, um, a pivotal point. I was lying in bed with one of those Patrick O'Brien great seafaring adventures. He's an author and a reader. 
those novels, and one of the characters whom I admired said a prayer before going to sleep, and thought, and I thought to myself, well, if he can pray, so can I. I laid the book aside and whispered a three-word prayer in gratitude for the contentment I'd found and for the work uh, of the people I loved. And a simple prayer was this, thank you, God. Thank you, God. He says it was a small, maybe even prideful prayer, maybe a self-impressed intellectual's hesitant experiment with faith. But he says God's response was an act of extravagant grace. I woke the next morning and everything had changed. There was a sudden clarity and brightness to familiar faces and objects. They were alive with meaning. And with my own delight in them, I called this experience, and this is what caught me, the joy of my joy. The joy of my joy. And it came to me again whenever I prayed. So naturally, I began to pray every day and experience this joy of my joy. He would go on to pursue Christ and this experience of joy that he was having, give his life to Christ, be baptized, and, and then write this testimony. And you know, it wasn't surprising to me when I read that he calls this experience the joy of my joy. That most of the time, we're not so eloquently, but there's generation after generation of people that are sharing about the transformation of when they come to Christ. There's this transformation of joy. It's this transformation of the mood or tenor of their life. And sometimes we can't explain it. We can't articulate it. Sometimes we lose it as Christians, unfortunately. But there's this ongoing testimony of life after life that talks about joy. In fact, from my own experience of the Christian faith, it was this couple, Tim and Cheryl, on a college campus, they, they were college pastors and they were newly married. They didn't have much money. They, they didn't have these great careers. They, they didn't have children. They didn't have any of those things. But there was something about their relationship for me that, that you could feel the joy. In fact, they didn't even have like wonderful uh, senses of humor. I only say that because I don't want you to miss what I'm saying. I, I don't know if it was Cheryl's countenance or, or, or Tim's simple lack of, or, or simple faith that he had, uh, just not lacking in any way, or, or if it was the, the, the easy laughter that they shared together, but it attracted me to them as a couple, and it attracted me to Christ Jesus. And, and I longed for that, that transformation of joy. Mary, why are you crying? It's Easter. It's not a time for tears. It's a time for this deep and abiding joy. There's another question that Jesus asks and it's a, it's a simple question. Um, and he simply asks, uh, first, woman, why are you crying? And then, 
Who is it that you are looking for? Did he know the answer to that question? He that mostly, yes, somewhat, yeah, but he's, I think he's being playful there as well. Who are you looking for? Now, what would be the deeper reason that he would ask that question? Why would they preserve it in the pages of, of Scripture? How would he want to use that question, not just in Mary's life, but in our life? And when I thought about who are you looking for? I thought first and foremost in Mary's life, was she looking for the crucified Jesus or the resurrected Jesus? She only knew one. She didn't know the other was available to her. In fact, in another gospel telling, in Luke, the angels actually do uh, ask a, a, a different question, which I think gets at the, the matter a little bit more. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Say, so why are you looking for the crucified Jesus? Don't you know the resurrected Jesus is available to you? And I thought, for you and I, I thought that question has some significance for perhaps our faith and the Jesus that we are looking for, the Jesus that we're turning to on a day-to-day basis. Are we looking for a faith in Christ that is perhaps only about the past, only about the ritual? only about a set of beliefs. Not that those things are bad in and of themselves, but did you know that there's more? That there is a resurrected Jesus Christ and a faith that is looking for a living, resurrected Jesus that's not on the cross, that's not in the grave, but right now in this moment is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is alive and alive to you right now, this very moment. Did you come this morning... Well, because it's Easter and that's what you do on Easter morning, right? Or did you come this morning looking for a resurrected Jesus who is alive to you in this very moment? Friends, that makes all the difference in the world. Some would call this one the first, a dead or even an empty religion versus a true and a live religion. Faith, the Christian faith, the true faith, is a faith that is connected with the living Savior right now. We get to live not only with a Savior who is alive to us, but Scripture would say this, you get to live a life, if you so desire, live a life that is alive to God. Alive to God. The Apostle Paul put it this way. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? How do we live a life that is alive 
to a living God. Think about it in the negative for just a moment. I think, unfortunately, we could probably relate that we've been living a life that is alive to sin. Do you know what I'm saying with that? When there's a sin, when there's a struggle, we think about that. We wonder the next time we can get to it. We give our money to that. We like to be in the sin's presence. You understand what I'm saying? Or am I the only one who's ever been alive to sin? Right? And the Apostle Paul is saying, let that die in you. That is not the life that God has for you. That is not the life that God has created you for. He has created you that your life would be alive to him. That you would feel active his voice, his presence, his goodness, his kindness. That in your day-to-day, it doesn't have to be drudgery. In your day-to-day, it can be a life that is alive to the living Jesus and the living God. A, A little example of that is I was having dinner with a couple of couples of our church and And one couple was newer to our faith. I asked him permission if I could share the story. And he, they were just, we were getting to know one another because they were newer, learning their names, profession, those kind of things. And then he said, Pastor, I just have to tell you what my experience of this community of faith is. I said, okay. So I, I, I walk in the sanctuary and I can't speak. And I was waiting for his wife to say, oh, and it is so nice, just an hour and 15 minutes. No, she, she didn't say that. It was kind of a sacred moment. And, and he said, I, I don't know what it is. If it's the music or, or if it's the message or, or, or the people, but I, I just, I, I can't get out. There's a, an emotional, and he uses this word, there's this presence that I, I just can't get anything out. And I, you know, I I just said, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And I was thinking about what is it? What, why? What is he experiencing there? And my first thought was, it's got to be my messages. I know. (laughs) Right? That's probably true. Let's hold on to that for the first answer. But maybe there's a deeper one. And I think that I want to suggest that he's experiencing the presence of the living God. And that some of us do that. And, and sometimes we don't know why or what. And it's, it, it can happen in the midst of a worship service. I hope it happens. I pray for it to happen. I believe it happened this morning for some of us. But it can happen into that day-to-day that at the essence of the Christian faith is that looking and finding and hearing that alive voice of our Savior. One that we're not just remembering the events as significant and powerful as they are of like Easter and Christmas, but, but we're actively living in the presence 
of a Savior who is alive to us. And he's inviting us that we would live a life alive to him. Mary, who are you looking for? That crucified Jesus, there's so much more. The resurrected Jesus, the alive Jesus. I wanted us to ask one more question, one more resurrection question, not part of the story. It comes from a little bit earlier. You don't have to turn there. I'll I'll just tell you the story and and read the words from Jesus. But it's it's a resurrection question. In fact, it's from the story of Lazarus. Lazarus dies and he has two sisters, Martha and Mary, and Jesus delays. They, they say, Lazarus is sick. Come, Jesus. Come, Jesus. And he delays because he wants to ask some questions. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. It, it's, a, it's a foreshadowing of Easter and his resurrection. So literally in the story, I don't know if you know this, but literally he raises, Lazarus dies, and he raises him to dead, uh, from the dead in the midst of of his earthly ministry. While he's going there, Lazarus is dead, and he gets there and he sees Martha. Martha and Mary and the others, they're weeping. Lazarus is dead. They think they've lost their brother into eternity. And this interaction that he has with Martha, it's this beautiful interaction. It says, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Was Jesus talking about that that day right in that moment? Or was he talking about eternity in the last day? What was that? Did someone say, sure? I like that. Yes. Sure. That's... I'm going to use that. Yeah, sure. Sure. She's talking about both. All right. Martha doesn't know that. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She believes for the last. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asks this question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I don't know. I can't decide if Jesus knew the answer to that question. Martha's response was, yes, Lord. She replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Martha said yes. What was he inviting her to believe? What's he inviting you and I to believe in this morning? I think it's a worthwhile question. And I want to suggest that he's not only inviting us to believe that he is the resurrection for all eternity and to answer those questions about the afterlife, but also that he is 
the life, the today, that he is the Savior in time and eternity, not just eternity. I think sometimes we miss the time. We miss, he said, I am the resurrection, and we celebrate and we believe that, especially on Easter morning, and yet Jesus said more than that, didn't he? He said, I am the resurrection and and the life. Yes, the resurrection of Christ is at the heart of the Christian message and our response and belief relates so profoundly to the resurrection. When, when the apostle Paul was speaking to the philosophers in Athens, what he spoke to them about was resurrection and that's what they were wrestling with. We're told that when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. They answered the question of Jesus one way. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. They weren't sure whether they believed it or not. That is at the heart of the Christian message. But friends, we often miss the time in the midst of eternity. We miss this idea that resurrection and eternity and our confession of belief in resurrection is meant to hit right here and right now to transform our lives, how we live today and tomorrow in the moments of life to transform our thoughts, our relationships, our activities, our focus, our meaning, all of that, eternity is meant to spill into our time. Do you see that? Yep. Let, me, let me explain it like this. Imagine you've got two women that work the same job, a nine-to-five job. They're on this assembly line, and they're putting parts together. All right, same exact job. Women of similar age, similar background, there's only one difference. And the first woman, she's working this job at the assembly line and she's told that at the end of the year for her hard work, she's gonna get $30,000. That's her pay for this assembly line job. The second woman is working the same job, same line, but the difference is she t is told and she will receive that at the end of the year for her hard work, she's going to receive $30 million. Do you think that the end result will affect how those two woman, women do their job? I would imagine the first woman would have a lot of sick days. Right? She'd call in and, yeah, <coughs> not doing good. Yeah, and they're like, and she'd be like, I need another, I, I'm going to start looking for a job because this is just not worth it, right? This is, this is the grind is horrible. I, I imagine the second woman, she might kind of whistle while she goes to the job, right? That she'd be like, this, I can't wait. This is the, the end result affects their job in the day-to-day, -day, and it's all the difference in the world. Friends, what happens to you in eternity should have a profound effect on your day-to-day -day here. Do you see it? That's what Jesus was after. 
He didn't just say, believe that I'm the resurrection. Would you believe that I am the life, the life for you to live in the here and now? Or as he says in John 17, now this is eternal life. It doesn't start at the end. It doesn't start when you die. This is eternal life that they would know present. Know you that the living God would be alive to you and you would be alive to them. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. His offer was not just eternity, but was in time today. Do you believe this? Martha, do you believe this? Friends, do you believe this? If you do, it will make all the difference in the world. And a live church should be a community of faith that doesn't just practice the rituals of the faith and remember the events of the faith and talks about the beliefs of the faith. And a live church should be one that says, can we talk about this new life, this eternal life that has begun for many of us, that, that has filled many of us with this deep and abiding joy, if you would but let it tinge your life in every experience. Can we talk about with one another, can we pray for one another that we would live a life not that is a dead religion, not to dead to one another, but alive to God in Christ? That's an alive church and faith. I'd be honored to speak to you about that new life, not just one time a year, not just twice a year if you include Christmas Eve services. But each week, learning that new and beautiful resurrection life, kingdom life, eternal life now. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we worship you this morning as the one true living son of God. You are the lamb that was holy and perfect without sin and yet you are the lamb that was slain on our behalf. Lord, that you have taken the forsakenness of God and given us new life, a nearness and aliveness. Lord, would you help us to live resurrection? Would you help us to live the life today, in this time, in this moment, and all eternity? Would you teach us about eternity by experiencing it today? Lord, I pray for more of us, like my friend, would you take away our breath because of your presence and your voice in our lives.
We pray all of this in the powerful and precious name of Jesus. Amen.